We're taking a two-week break from Deuteronomy because I have a word for our church, a vision for the year to come, and it is a vision about prayer. And here's what I want you to think about with me. Fervent, constant, and corporate. These are the three words that describe the New Testament understanding of what a praying church looks like, okay? Fervent, which means a praying church is the kind of church where the people pray like their life depends on it. And that's the kind of church we're gonna be. Constant is the repetition of prayer in the church. Think how often you say to your teenager, you are constantly on your phone, all right? That's what God wants to say to the church about their prayer life. (laughs) You are constantly praying, except when God says that, it's not annoyance and it's not a rebuke. It's the greatest thing God could think about a church. Amen? Amen? And corporate. Now here's the thing. The next two weeks are are a vision for our church, but I'm not going to be talking about your personal prayer life, although that matters. And we've talked about that many times before. This is a sermon series about our corporate prayer life. What would it look like in 2024 for River West Church to go even deeper in our expression of prayer together as a church family. That's what we're gonna talk about. That's what we're gonna do over the next two weeks. And to get things started, I wanna tell you this morning the story of my experience with the most interesting verse in the Bible about prayer. And some of you, I I shared this last week, and some of you are like, I'm trying to guess what verse you're talking about. The most interesting verse about prayer, here's what happened. Every once in a while, before I go running, I will grab my Bible, and I'll just open my Bible, and I'll just pick a verse, and I'll decide to meditate on that verse, and I'll kind of go running, and I'll pray through it. And back in December, I was about to go running, I grabbed my Bible, I opened to James 5, and here, now you don't have to look at it yet, but here is what I read, all right? Think about this. I read, Elijah was a human being with a nature just like ours. Have you ever read that verse? Have you ever had an experience where you read a verse and you're like, I read past that real quick, okay, get to something important, James. And then I, I, I read that verse and then I had to go, I had committed, I was already committed to it, so I was like, I have to go running now for 45 minutes and meditate on this sentence. Elijah was a human being with a nature like ours, all right? And you know what happened? God took my breath away because that is a verse about prayer. That's a verse about Elijah's prayer life. And if you know anything about Elijah's life, you know, I mean, he had an amazing prayer life and some seriously miraculous things happened. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Elijah raised somebody from the dead. Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three years and six months. And then James says, oh, and by the way, just in case you're worried about it, Elijah was just a human being. And he had a nature just like yours. 
And I went running. And I was like, I am so glad this verse is in the Bible. Because you know what we do? We open the Bible and we read stories about some of these characters in the Bible and we, and we think they're unattainable. Like there's some super saint. I could never be like Elijah. I could never be like Moses. I'm just, you know, it's just me. It's just Adam. Have you ever thought that? Preachers, just a little, world, a little window into the life of preachers. What we do as preachers is we go online and we listen to these superstar preachers and then we feel really terrible about ourselves, all right? That's, that's how it goes in the life of a preacher. So I listen to Tim Keller, who has now passed, but one of the great preachers of all time. And Tim Keller has this way of preaching where the way I describe his preaching style is he preaches like he's always sort of just stumbling accidentally onto something unbelievably profound and amazing. He's up there like mumbling and then he'll drop this truth mom and you're like I know you wrote that in your notes earlier this week but I listened to him preach and I'm like oh I will never be able to preach like Tim Keller one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard was preached by a pastor named Charlie Dates who pastors this mega church in south central Chicago and he has this style of preaching where when he starts getting revved up, all right, and he'll drop a bomb, and, and he, you know he's dropped something huge because he'll walk away from the pulpit, and he'll start stomping and dancing, and then people stand up, and they start stomping and dancing. Okay, so this morning, if I step away from the pulpit, okay, somebody stand up and dance with me. And I watch Charlie Dates, and I'm like, I could never preach like that. Or I listen to Jackie Hill Perry, and I think, oh, I could never speak like that. She's such a gifted preacher. But here's the thing. How many of you think I could never pray like someone like Elijah? Especially not in a circle with other Christians. Like, I have no business being there. I don't know the Bible very well. I don't have very deep theology. I'm kind of immature as a Christian. What if I say something that sounds heretical? Or, you know, I'm not very eloquent. What if, what if I get into like a prayer circle and, and I start stumbling over my words? Or I'm pretty messed up. Like, am I, you know, should I be praying in the church? Do you know what? I think James heard all of those kinds of thoughts from his church and he said, no, 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 no. Elijah was just a human being, just like you. But he had an amazing prayer life. James believed that every man, woman, and child in his church could pray with the same impact as Elijah, and so do I. And James understood the number one reason probably why a lot of people aren't praying like that is because they have this view of themselves where they're saying, I could never, I could never do this. I could never do that. So I'm going to start out with a prophetic word, River West. For some of you, this is not going to apply to you, but for many of you, I know it is. This is a word for you in 2024 and I want you to receive it as a word from the Lord. It's time to stop telling yourself that your prayers don't matter. Stop telling yourself that. It's time to stop telling yourself that you don't have an audience with the living God. Because you do. It's time to stop telling yourself that you couldn't grow as a person of prayer because you can. Amen? Amen. 
I'm gonna argue that one of the main threats to becoming a praying church is this pervasive inner voice that we carry around that tells us, I'm not a super Christian. I've got problems. I have no business praying. And God is saying, put that in the rear view. We're moving forward. Every man, woman, and child of River West Church, we're all stepping forward in the new year into something deeper, and it's going to be amazing, amazing. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to ask the question, why does, why does James bring up Elijah? So now open your Bible, look with me, James 5. What I want to do is read really quickly the context, get you to verse 17 so you can see what's happening, because I want you to realize this is a, this is a passage about corporate prayer, all right? Here's what James says. James chapter five, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Just put your finger there. Here's what's going on. This is where I got the word constant because basically what James is saying to the church is it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, pray about it. Pray when you're hurting, look at verse 13. Pray when you're hurting, pray when you're happy. Pray when you need to be healed. The answer to every situation in the church is we start by praying about it and we pray with other believers. Amen? Can we just agree on something this morning? Prayer is not just one of the ministries of our church, all right? We got the student ministry, we got the young adults, we got the fourth quarter ministry for the guys, the, the more mature, see what I did there, the more mature guys in the church. We got the Oaks, the older active kindred spirits. I've been trying to join that, that group for years. They keep telling me you can't come. And then we've got like, and then we say, and then we got our prayer ministry. And it's that, let's scratch that. Prayer is not just one of our ministries. Prayer is the ministry underneath everything else that we do and all of the power and all of the fruit that's gonna come from anything we do will come as Christians in our church gather and pray together. Okay, I'm gonna dance in a minute, so get ready. <laughs> it doesn't mean prayer's the only thing we do, it just means it's the first thing we do. You can always do something after you've prayed, but you should never do anything before you've prayed. Let me keep reading. So call the elders, verse 14. If you need, if you need and by the way, you can call the elders of our church. We will pray for you. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Now look at this verse. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is a passage about Christians in a church praying together and talking about life and talking about their brokenness. God intended prayer to bond a church family together. That's the beauty of prayer. And the reason I have such an urgency is I know that some of you have never really got to experience the beauty of this. Being, being in a circle, I love what Brandon said, let's go from rows to circles. 
being in a circle with other believers and maybe you're intimidated and maybe you know, for a while you don't pray out loud but others are praying for you and you just feel something is happening and that's what James is describing here. When one family member falls ill physically or spiritually, others in the community rush in and they intervene with prayer. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, if River West is your home church, that means you are responsible for the well-being of the people around you and the way that you care for them is by praying with them and praying for them. That's how we do it. Yes, the elders have a, have a slightly elevated role for the big stuff. If you need to be anointed with oil, I talked about this a couple years ago. So if you want an understanding of the theology of that, go back, listen to the James series. But what James does is he opens the circle wider and he says, this is actually part of the ministry of the whole church. We should be praying for each other and praying for illness and talking about what's broken in our lives and holding each other up in prayer. And then... He goes on, and here's where, here's where it gets absolutely amazing. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, verse 16. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. But Elijah was just a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. There it is. There's Elijah. Now, I want you to look at your Bible, because I, I like to show you the logic. Look at verse 16, the end of verse 16, and the logic, because there's a reason why James gets to the end of verse 16, and then he goes, I need to stop, and I need to illustrate this, because I just said something massive. I just said the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And I probably need to clarify that. And I need to illustrate it. And so James says, what would be the best illustration from the Old Testament to sort of like fill that in? And he goes, Elijah. It's Elijah. And I was on my run thinking, why did James choose Elijah? Why Elijah? Because when you read verse 16, phrase B, the prayer of a righteous person has great powers that's working, a lot of people go, whoa, that sounds really intimidating, and I'm pretty sure that doesn't describe me. And so James says, actually, that's, that's exactly the thing that I want to clarify and get out of your head. And I think there's four reasons why James chose Elijah. I'm gonna put these on the screen. You don't have to write these down because I'm gonna go back through each of them. They're gonna go back on the screen. All I want you to do right now is soak this in, read these, because I want you to see the relationships between them. There's four reasons why James chose Elijah. First of all, Elijah clarified for James what he meant by the phrase a righteous person because that phrase is open to a lot of misinterpretation. And a lot of people hear it and think, I don't, I'm pretty sure that doesn't describe me. And so James wants to clarify that. The second reason he chose Elijah is because Elijah in his life asked for things that could only be explained by divine intervention. These were like big supernatural prayers. Like I pray it won't rain for three years. But then the next one's really critical as a clarifier. 
Elijah's prayers pointed people back to God. I'm gonna show you why that's so important. And then finally, Elijah kept praying, even when God made him wait. And I just wanna take a couple minutes on each of these, walk through it, and then at the end, I'm I'm gonna talk about a couple really practical things. Here's the first one, I'll put it up. Elijah clarifies what he means by the phrase righteous person, because that phrase is prone to a ton of misunderstanding. In verse 16, he said, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And people hear that and they immediately think, well, that excludes me. And that's exactly why I don't like praying in front of other people. That's why I'm insecure about this, especially praying with other Christians where they can hear me, because that's what righteous people do. And I'm not a part of that group. But here's what you need to know. James's audience would have been familiar with some of Elijah's darker moments. So they would have known, oh yeah, Elijah did some amazing things. He confronted King Ahab because Ahab was wicked and he, he prayed that it wouldn't rain. God had said, go to Ahab. This is gonna be like a warning to Ahab. It's, there's gonna be a drought in your land because of your wickedness. And Elijah was the one who prayed for that. In a minute, I'll tell you the story about the, the, the prophets of Baal, the hundreds of prophets, and they have, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and heaven and fire falls, and all that stuff is incredible, but what James's audience would have known is there were also these moments where Elijah was like, pretty messed up dude. There's a moment where after all these miracles happen, Elijah gets a, a note from the king's wife, her name is Jezebel, and she basically says, I'm gonna try to kill you. And he's seen all these, God do all these wonders and that that little note from the king's wife sends him into a tailspin and he goes off into the desert and he has a pity party. And he's like, God, just kill me now. God, just kill me. Have you ever had that happen? You get a text from somebody and it's slightly aggressive and your whole world just like unravels for the rest of the day. And you like have a pity party and you think the sun's not gonna rise tomorrow morning. That's, you know, Elijah gets a text from the king's wife and, she, and he's like, it's over. He goes off and you read it and you realize, oh my gosh, Elijah was just as weak, just as broken, just as insecure, just as faithless at times. He probably has struggled with all the same temptations I do. And yet somehow, he's being used as the example of a righteous person whose prayers are powerful. So whatever a righteous person means, it's gotta make room for someone who's broken and weak and insecure and struggles with temptation and stubs their toe all the time and constantly makes mistakes. Somehow that's all got to fit in with being a righteous person. So a lot of you are been with us for a long time. A lot of you are new. We've got some guests. So let's get some good theology together, all right? You don't necessarily have to believe everything I'm about to say, but this is what we believe at River West. Let's agree on some good theology about what the Bible means when it describes a righteous person. And here's what I want you to know. It goes like this. Righteousness is not a status that you earn through effort. It's a status that God gives to you 
as a gift by his grace. I'm gonna say that again. Righteousness is not something you earn. You gain a status through your effort. Righteousness is a gift that God gives you by his grace through faith in Christ. And the reason this matters is, if you don't understand that, if you think righteousness is something I'm always trying to attain to, you're never gonna really pray the way God longs for you to pray. Because you're always gonna be doubting, do I deserve to be here? I love how Derwin Gray put it. Derwin Gray's a pastor on the East Coast. Here's what he said. Jesus not only comes to forgive and purify you, but he is also your representative to God the Father. Look at this. The righteous life that Jesus lived is given to you freely. His status before the Father is now your status before the Father. Think about that. Because righteousness is a relational word. It's about being right with God. And what the Bible teaches, and I'll show you in a verse in a minute, is Jesus lives a perfect righteous life, and then all that perfect righteousness is given to the believer, and now God sees you, if you're in Christ, he sees you the exact same way that he sees Jesus. That is your status of righteousness before the Father. And see, if we actually believe that, think how that would impact the way we would pray. We would pray the way Jesus prayed. Here's where I'm getting it, Romans chapter three, but there's tons of places. Here's Romans three, uh, 23 and 24. Um, It says, um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. That word justified is the word righteous. It's the verbal form. It means they're made righteous or declared righteous. So Paul says two things. He says, everyone is in sin, but for the Christian who's in Christ, look at verse 24, that person is justified. They're declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And so the real question I want everyone in this room to be asking is, am I in Christ? Because if you are in Christ, friend, then God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And when you come into a moment of prayer with other believers, that's your most fundamental identity. And then God fills you with the Holy Spirit and you go on a journey of becoming more and more the righteousness that's already been given to you. That's sanctification. But in that moment of salvation, God sees you with the perfect record of Jesus. And that should change the way we pray. That should change the way we pray. So that's the first thing. Now in a minute, I'm gonna have you pray about that because I'm saying it and some of you are going, I don't believe that's true about me. I can see it in your eyes. You're looking at me and he's like, I'm waiting for this guy to dance, but I don't believe that I'm righteous. But friends, if you're in Christ, you have the perfect righteousness of Jesus over you. Okay, here's the second thing about Elijah. Elijah asked for things in prayer that required supernatural intervention. Like he prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three years. It's perfectly normal in the Christian life to pray for all kinds of 
simpler things, pray for a new job, pray about anxiety, pray about broken relationships, pray for patience. But there's a difference between praying for a new job and praying that it wouldn't rain for three years. One of those requires divine intervention. Do I need to tell you which one it is? Okay, and Elijah, here's the thing. Elijah's praying for big, big, like supernatural stuff. And James is trying to stir his church up to fervent prayer. And he's saying the kind of prayer that I'm talking about, you can pray about all of that other stuff, but there are these moments in the life of the church where you're gonna be led to pray for things that can only be explained by divine intervention. I don't know exactly how this works, but somehow God allows us to participate in his wonders. I don't know how it works, but he does it all the time. Parting seas, causing droughts, praying for people to be healed miraculously from illness, sharing the gospel and praying for people that they would become born again. God could do all that stuff on his own. And somehow he decides, I'm gonna let them be involved in what I'm doing. And I don't exactly know how it works, but I know this, I've experienced it in a small way in my marriage, all right? I've experienced this in my marriage with my wife, and you're thinking, is he about to compare his wife to God? No, not exactly. I mean, almost, but not exactly. My wife, I've told you this, my wife is truly one of the great chefs that I know. She's an amazing cook. She goes into the kitchen with a vision, and something miraculous comes out. But here's what you need to know about great chefs. There's always a really amazing sous chef nearby. Am I right? Okay. Every great chef has a sous chef. And guess who Kathy's sous chef is? Yours truly, all right? And so here's what happens. She goes into the kitchen with a vision, and she's flying around the kitchen, and ingredients are flying, and she needs this. She needs a pan. She needs cardamom. And I'm like, cardamom? Do you want your sweater? No, that's a cardigan. What's happening? And she's asking for ingredients. Pans are flying around. I'm the sous chef. I'm the dishwasher. I'm the garbage man. I'm the hostess. I do it all. But then here's the thing. She's got the vision. She knows what she's going to make. And when the meal comes out, no one says, hey, our compliments to the sous chef. And it's, <laughs> and it's very insulting to me. All right? Because I'm like, there's no way she could have pulled that off without me. But that's another sermon. Here's the point. That's exactly what's happening in the redemptive purposes of God. God's going to do wonders. And then somehow he says, you know what? I'm going to let my people be a part of this. And it's going to be hard work and they're going to be involved and they're going to pray. The problem is so many people have a warped understanding of what qualifies as a miracle. See, we think miracles have to be something like, you know, just massive, like dust, gold dust falling from the rafters or something like that. And, or sometimes we think it's always got to involve a miraculous healing from sickness. And James says, all that stuff, fine. You want to, James would say, do you want to know what's miraculous? A church where people are constantly getting together in small groups 
talking honestly about their brokenness, praying for one another, and people getting healed and people getting saved. James says, there, thank you. Okay, good, thank you. You know what James says? James says, that's the miracle. That's the miracle. People being vulnerable with one another, praying for one another, and doing it constantly. That is a miracle. And I want to be a part of it. And I hope you do too. Here's the third reason I think James uses Elijah. This is so important, folks. Elijah's prayers pointed people back to God. Here's what I did, and here's what I'd recommend you do. I read the whole account of Elijah in one sitting. It only takes a half an hour. It's three chapters. First Kings 1, First Kings verses 17, 18, and 19. And what's striking is when you read, the, when you read Elijah's account, there's something you're going to notice. He never prays for anything personal. It doesn't mean that he didn't pray like that. It's just that in the account, there's no record of that. There's no personal prayers. All of his prayers had the goal of drawing people back into a right relationship with God. It's like Elijah was deeply grieved by the fact that the people of Israel, like the worst studying in Deuteronomy, when they got into the, the promised land, almost immediately, wholesale, the people turned their backs on God and abandoned him. And Elijah was grieved about this. And so every prayer was about God's reputation and people being drawn back to God. There's this one dramatic scene. I don't want you to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you, but if you want to read it later, there's this scene where Elijah, there's been a drought for three years and six months, and then God says, now I want you to go, and I want you to confront King Ahab. King Ahab had led the people into sin, and, he, and Elijah comes out of the wilderness. He'd been hiding in the wilderness for his life, and God says, go, confront Ahab, and, and here's, I'll just read you the conversation that he had with Ahab. This is 1 Kings 18 and verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel. You have. And your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. These are the two false gods that Ahab had gone after. And Elijah's like, get all of your prophets of these false gods and, and meet me. And now you know the story. There's this massive like showdown. And Elijah says, here's what we're gonna do. All of you prophets of Baal, you're, you're claiming that Baal is a true God. You're gonna have an altar and you're gonna have a calf on your altar. And I'm gonna have an altar and I'm gonna have a calf on my altar. And we're both gonna cry out to our God and the God who sends down fire to burn the altar is the one true God. This is a really dramatic story. But what's, the problem is it's so dramatic that when we read it, we miss the point of like Elijah's heart. And so now let me read to you. So the prophets of Baal pray and pray and pray and nothing happens. It's like, 
You know, there's nothing going on. And then Elijah, he gets real dramatic. And Elijah's like, okay, now before I pray, let's get some water on this baby. And they just start dumping buckets of water on Elijah's altar, right? And you know where this is going because it's the Bible. It's about God, okay? But here's the thing. Here's what he says. Verse 36, this is at the time of the offering, Elijah the prophet came near and look, this is the purpose. It's not just a big show. It's not just a big miracle. His heart is grieved that people have abandoned God. He said, this is his prayer. Oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I'm just your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. You see it? That's the prayer. Oh God, my heart is grieved at what I see happening in my family, in my nation, in my neighborhood. I want to pray for big things. I want to pray for things that could only be explained by divine intervention. But I don't want to pray for that stuff because I'm looking for a show or I want people to pay attention to me. I want to pray for those things, God, because my heart is grieved. I want people to be brought back to the living God. So pray for all the things in your life, friend. But here's the key. In your prayer life, is your number one goal in your prayer life that people in our world would be turned back to the living God in whatever you're praying for. Because James is saying, any one of you can pray like Elijah, but here's the thing, you gotta realize, the the reason Elijah was praying is because he wanted people to be turned back to God, which means you can do it too. And then finally, number four. Elijah kept praying even while God made him wait. In James, uh, that phrase in, in verse 18, um, where it says, it says he, he, prayed for, he prayed fervently, it didn't rain for three years, and then verse 18, then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. That phrase is a summary, and it makes it sound like all that stuff happened immediately, but it didn't. First of all, when you pray for a drought, it's sort of implied that you have to stick around for a little while to see if it actually stops raining, right? And then what happens is when Elijah prays that it'll rain again, James's hearers knew, oh, there's a story there, and the story is actually, it didn't start raining immediately. He goes up on Mount Carmel, he's praying, he bows down on his knees, he's begging God, please God, let it rain. And then he says to his servant, okay, go up and look on the horizon. And his servant goes up and there's nothing, no clouds. Servant comes back and he's like, nothing's happened yet, Elijah. Elijah says, let's pray again. And he sends him back up again. Seven times he sends him up. And finally, the servant comes back and he's like, there's a tiny little cloud way off in the distance. And the point is, Elijah did not stop praying just because he was waiting. In fact, he prayed through the waiting. Have you ever prayed for something and it doesn't seem to be happening and you start to get discouraged? Elijah knew that. I bet Elijah was freaking out. 
He's like, I got to deliver here. And I was told to pray for this and nothing's happening. How do you respond? How do you respond in your life when you've been praying for something and doesn't seem to be happening? I don't know about you, but sometimes I get real discouraged. And I think, is this just a waste of time? Are you praying for a prodigal kid? You have a prodigal child? Are you praying for a sibling? I've been praying for my brother, my older brother, to come to Christ for over 20 years. I've been praying for him. His name is Trevor. You can pray for him as well if you'd like. How about you? Whenever, whenever I think of persevering prayer, I always think of a woman in our church named Ginny Rodriguez. Ginny Rodriguez. If you know her, you know her. If you don't know her, get to know her. All right, Ginny Rodriguez. I met Ginny and Larry Rodriguez when I first came to River West. They were new to the church. And I learned two things when I right away about uh, Ginny and Larry Rodriguez. The first thing I learned is that Larry had been diagnosed with cancer. It was a cancer that eventually would, would take his life. We lost Larry about nine years ago, 13 years ago. That's Ginny, by the way. I didn't mean to put her on the spot like that, but there's Ginny. <laughs> and, uh, and the other thing I learned about Larry was that Larry was a really new Christian. And the story's amazing because basically... When Ginny and Larry got married, none of the, neither of them were believers. And then Ginny had this radical experience with Jesus and she became a Christian. And what happened was that actually created some, some fear. Ginny was, we were talking about this story yesterday. There was a little bit of fear because Larry started thinking, Ginny, like, like, is this gonna hurt our marriage? Are you gonna leave me now because I'm not a Christian, you know? And Ginny would say, Larry, I will never leave you. I mean, God has told me in his word never to leave my husband. And then Larry was like, so you're only staying because God told you to stay in this thing? You know, but Ginny was like, I'm just gonna pray for you. So Ginny, right after she came to Christ, she got invited into a small prayer group, women in the church. And she said it was like nothing I'd ever experienced in my life because the women in that group prayed like God was actually right there listening to them, listening to the prayers. And they started praying for Larry. Ginny prayed for Larry for 21 years. And after 21 years, Larry surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and became a Christian. Isn't that amazing? 21 years. 21 years. And the reality is you can do it too. You can pray like this too. Stop telling yourself your prayers don't matter. They matter. I want our church to step forward into prayer. But here's the thing, and you've heard me say this now. We're never gonna become a praying church by talking about prayer or preaching about prayer. We're gonna become a praying church by actually praying together, right? There are some things you can only understand from the inside. You have to... Just try it. It's like I say, you can read a thousand cookbooks and never know what a fabulous meal tastes like till you actually make it and eat it, right? You can listen to a thousand songs by Taylor Swift 
And you will never know what it's like to break up with a guy to write a song about it until you actually do that, okay? (laughs) And you can listen to a thousand sermons about prayer, but you'll never know what it's really like, the joy and the power and the beauty until you take a little step, it takes some courage, and show up in a circle, and I'm gonna pray with some other Christians. And then... You'll, you'll know, oh. And so we're gonna have a night of prayer next Sunday night at 6 p.m. And I really, really wanna encourage you, take a step of faith. Our high school group is gonna be there. Our college group is gonna be there. Our young adults are gonna be there. A lot of our community groups are gonna be there. By the way, our student ministry, Tiffany's preaching this passage right now, right over there. They're talking about it down in our children's ministry. Our whole church is coming to this night of prayer next Sunday night, the 14th, 6 p.m. And here's the thing. I know, it's scary. And some of you are like, I have never come to something like that, and I don't plan to come next Sunday either, okay? So psychologists have this little thing called exposure therapy, okay? And here's how it works. If you're accidentally exposed to something that you're phobic of, your phobia gets worse. But if you voluntarily expose yourself to the stressor, then your bravery will grow. And you'll realize, I was scared of nothing. I was scared of nothing. And so can you do me a favor this morning? Make a commitment. I'm going to try this. I'm gonna show up to, we're not gonna make you pray out loud. We're not gonna make you confess your sins in front of the church. Okay, we're not, it's gonna be very safe. We'll provide a lot of on-ramps. But folks, the way we're gonna become a praying church is by actually praying together. Amen? So come to the prayer thing. We're gonna do one of those a month until Easter. Right before Easter Sunday, we're gonna do a 32 hours of prayer, like a prayer vigil. I'll tell you all more about that. Couple other things, we have a, we have a group that meets um, on Wednesday in our church at noon and they pray together. They do that every Wednesday. They thought long and hard about what to call their group and they just, in a moment of brilliance, they called it Wednesday Noon Prayer. So they thought about that, prayed about it. It's called Wednesday Noon Prayer. And now there's one of those on Wednesday nights at 6.30. There's a 6.30 Wednesday night prayer and you could come to those this week. And some of you probably realize, I should probably show up to that. I should show up to that. I'm gonna have the worship team come and here's what I'm gonna say as I close. I've thought about how, you know, life is pretty short and there's gonna come a day where we're all gonna look back and go, whoa, my time here on earth flew by. I mean, it's like blink and it's gone. And I don't know a lot of things, but I know this, When I look back, I'll never think to myself, I should have been on my phone more. Like that was a miss. I'll never think to myself, I should have watched Netflix more. But I probably will say to myself, I should have prayed more with other Christians. I should have put myself out there. I should have asked somebody, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? I'll probably think that. And my guess is you will too. Let's minimize that, shall we, in 2024. Amen? Amen? Will you stand?
with me. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to the table here. The worship team's gonna lead us and I'm gonna invite you to leave. Go to the table and get those elements and hold on to those. Come back to your seat. I'm gonna come back in a minute and lead us in a prayer together. But uh, let's worship the Lord and I'll invite you uh, to the table. Will you bow your heads? Will you hold that bread in your fingertips? Because James said, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful as it's working. And I want you to be thinking to yourself right now. I can be perfectly righteous right now in this moment through the gift of God. So for some of you, this morning is a really wonderful, important moment because you're realizing, I actually am not in Christ. But I've been invited this morning to put my faith in Jesus. That to eat the bread and to drink the cup is to say, I believe God that your son Jesus took away my record of sin and replaced it with his perfect record of righteousness. And that could happen right now as you eat and drink through a simple prayer of faith. So don't wait. Don't, Don't walk out the door and do it next week. Do it this morning. And for the rest of us to be reminded, this cost Jesus dearly. Who am I to tell God that I'm not hidden in Christ and his perfect righteousness? He gave his body, his blood was shed to wash me clean. And I receive it this morning. And so we thank you, Lord. Folks, just make that your prayer this morning as we worship. Amen.